Please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. Our passage for today is Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. And let's begin our time this morning by reading this passage together. So once again, we're in Matthew 13, 53 to 58. Uh, As you know, Jesus has just delivered the kingdom parables, uh, the last of which we studied last week. And now at the end of this, Matthew writes this. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then... Did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When I was a child, there was one place, one town, that I liked to go to more than any other place. And that was Mansfield, Missouri. I don't know if you've ever been to Mansfield. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's about 45 minutes east of Springfield. There's not really too much there. It's known as the the place where Laurel Ingalls Wilder wrote her Little House on the Prairie books. But outside of that, there's really nothing special about the town. It's home to only about 1,300 people. And although it... It sets very nicely along the, the hillside of an of a Ozark hill. It's a poor town, and so it's a little bit run down. If you've ever driven from here to southeast Missouri, then you probably passed it going down Highway 65, going 65 down Highway 60, and you may not have even noticed that it was there. It's really a pretty unremarkable town. But when I was a boy, there was no place on earth I'd rather go to than Mansfield, Missouri. To me, Mansfield was special. Mansfield was where my grandparents lived. It was where my mom and her sisters grew up, so we'd often visit Mansfield in order to see my grandma and grandpa Cooper. When I was younger, we lived just a few hours away in Claremore, and so it wasn't uncommon for me to come home from school on a Friday and hear my mom tell me, you need to go get ready because we're leaving in a few minutes to go spend the weekend with grandma and grandpa in Mansfield. And whenever she said that, I knew instantly that it was going to be just an amazing weekend. Grandma and Grandpa had this tree in their side yard that had this kind of low, horizontal branch. And I learned how to climb trees on that tree. And one of the first things I'd do whenever i go to their house was run off into the side yard and climb it. They had lots of good climbing trees. And I typically spent a lot of our time there kind of suspended up in the air in one or another tree in their backyard. Grandma and Grandpa also lived at the foot of this big hill that overlooked the town, and their their property stretched up halfway this hill. And I'd run up to the top of that hill and overlook the town, sometimes while sitting in a tree. And I'd build forts in their woodpile that was up at the top of that hill. In the winter, Grandpa heated the house with a wood stove. When we'd walk inside, we could smell the fire, and I could watch the cardinals out the back of their kitchen window. When evening came, we'd go sit on this metal kind of rocking chair that my grandma had on the front porch and we'd sit and talk for, it seemed like hours, and we'd watch, it, watch for bats to come swooping in under the streetlight to, to catch bugs. Then my brother and I would go to bed. And because there was only one bed for the two of us, we'd have to sleep in the same one and we'd watch Johnny Carson together as we went to sleep. On Thanksgiving, my cousins would come, and we'd all cram into that house to eat our Thanksgiving dinner together, the parents at one table, the kids at another. At Easter, we'd hunt for Easter eggs in my grandpa's living room before dressing up in our best clothes and having our pictures taken on the front stoop. In the summer, I'd walk down to my grandpa's barber shop and sit and listen to the local farmers tell stories and talk sports and politics for about an hour or so. Then I'd climb in his truck, and we'd go home for lunch. I could go on. I could talk of the scary stories my grandpa used to tell me about raw head and bloody bones. I could talk about how he'd sometimes take us hunting for Indian arrowheads or how he'd take us fishing. 
I could talk about how at Christmas all the men would, would pile in the car and drive into Springfield to eat dessert at Piccadilly's, which was our annual tradition. I could talk about the blueberry muffins and the chocolate chip cookies that my grandma would give to my brother and I when we left. But I think you get the idea. Mansfield was special to me. There was a lot of really great memories formed there. One of the hardest things for me to cope with as I grew up was losing Mansfield. I never expected to lose Mansfield, but then over time, things started to change. And before I knew it, I lost it. The town was still there. Don't get me wrong, it was still there. I could still travel there. But it wasn't the Mansfield I knew anymore. First, Grandma died. And the house was a bit emptier every time we went there. You didn't hear her voice anymore. You didn't smell her perfume. You didn't hear her laughter after a good joke. No longer did we sit on the front porch in the evening and look for bats. And then we got older. I lost interest in climbing trees in the backyard or building wood forts. My brother and I got too big to share a bed. Johnny Carson retired. And then my grandpa did. We moved to Wisconsin. One, one set of cousins moved to Brazil. Another started college. Holidays were spent at home. And trips to Mansfield became very rare. Sometimes we did go back. And every time I go, I'd get excited to be in Mansfield again. And every time I'd leave, first disappointed and then sad, as I realized that Mansfield wasn't quite the way I remembered it. Mansfield had changed, or at least that's what I thought at first. I thought Mansfield had changed. In some ways, it had. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized over time that it wasn't Mansfield that had changed, really. It was everything else. Life had changed. I had changed. Time had passed. And the things that made those moments seem so perfect as a kid, they weren't the same anymore. And those moments, they they weren't going to come back. Mansfield as I knew it didn't exist anymore. I could go back as often as I wanted, but it wouldn't be the same town. The Mansfield that I knew as a kid would only exist in my memory. I could never really go back and visit it again. There's this saying that you can't go home again. It comes from the title of a book written by Thomas Wolfe about this author who leaves his hometown and then later writes a novel about his experiences there. Then when he finally comes back home, the people there are so upset about what he wrote in that novel that he can't stay there anymore. And the novel explores the author's search for an identity outside of his hometown after he leaves. Towards the end of the book, Wolfe writes this. He says, you can't go back home to your family. Back home to your childhood. Back home to romantic love. Back home to a young man's dreams of glory and fame. Back home to places in the country. Away from all the strife and conflict of the world. Back home to the father you lost and have been looking for. Back home to someone who can help you, save you, ease the burden for you. Back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time. Back home to the escapes of time and memory. I really can't think of a better way to state what happens when you get older and experience changes, these these changes make it impossible for you to return to the familiar things that you used to know. I hadn't really understood this phrase, you can't go home again when I was younger, but after I lost Mansfield, I understood it perfectly. There was no going back to Mansfield, no matter how hard I tried. It was too, I was too different, I could, I could never experience it the same way again. Well, if you can understand the meaning of this concept, then I think you have a decent picture of what's happening in our passage this morning. In a sense, that's what we're going to see unfold in the passage before us. Jesus is returning home to Nazareth only to discover that he can't go home again. Matthew says that when Jesus finished the parables, he went away from where he was, which seems to be Capernaum. And he went to his hometown, which we know to be the town of Nazareth. According to Matthew 2.23, this is where Joseph had settled with his family after Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. This is where Jesus grew up. In fact, this is where he would have lived for close to 30 years of his life. However, sometime after his baptism by John, Jesus left Nazareth 
And he moved, he relocated to Capernaum, according to Matthew 4.13. Matthew was a sleepy, or Nazareth was a, was a sleepy country town of only a, a few hundred residents. And while there was a road that came nearby, it wasn't necessarily an international trade route uh, as the same kind of road that went through Capernaum. It wasn't the, the kind of place you would go to launch a global ministry. It wasn't suitable. Uh, it didn't have that kind of influence. And so it would appear that Jesus left Nazareth sometime after his baptism by John in order to select a location that was more suitable for his message, uh, arriving eventually in Capernaum. And this is where Jesus spent the bulk of his early ministry. Here in verses 53 to 54, Jesus finishes these parables and he returns home. And to our knowledge, this is the first time that Jesus has returned home since his public ministry really gained a lot of, uh, of, of momentum in Capernaum. Now, according to Luke, there was one other time before this that Jesus had visited Nazareth. And, and we'll get to that visit in a few minutes. But even then, that visit occurred at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, before he ever moved to Capernaum. So this would seem to be the very first time that Jesus has returned home since he moved to Capernaum. And this means that this is really the first time that Jesus has come home since the power at work in his ministry has really been confirmed, verified. Again, there was a visit that Luke records towards the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but that was before the reports about the signs and wonders that Jesus was doing could really be confirmed. Jesus had performed some signs when he first came to Nazareth. He had turned the water into wine at Cana. According to John, he performed several signs in Jerusalem during the Passover that followed his baptism. And it would seem that after coming back from Jerusalem, he also healed an official son in Capernaum while staying in Cana. Uh, apparently, the people in Nazareth had even heard reports of at least some of these signs when, when Jesus first came back to visit. But at that point in his ministry, these reports would have been little more than rumor. Some people came back to Galilee from Jerusalem saying that Jesus did amazing things there. And some other people from Capernaum have passed through the town saying that, that Jesus healed a boy all the way from Cana. Yeah, right, I'll believe that when I see it. That was the initial reaction to Jesus when He came home to Nazareth the first time. Sure, there were rumors going around that Jesus was performing these miraculous signs and wonders, but surely those were just tall tales. That's what the people thought. People are just excited about Jesus, and so they're embellishing a little bit on what he's saying and doing. Maybe, maybe they're even looking for attention, so they're coming back from Jerusalem with this really good story to tell about Jesus. But surely that's all been made up. That's what the people in Nazareth, and, and really probably most of Galilee, would have thought at the time that Jesus first went home to Nazareth. At that stage of his ministry, perhaps the people might have thought that Jesus was to become a, a political leader or a social reformer or, or something like that. But from what they saw, he was still an essentially normal person at that time, not entirely different from you and me. I think we probably lose sight of this at times because we're always looking back on the life of Christ after the cross, at the end of the story. For us, Jesus is a, is a pretty static figure. We know Him to be the Son of God, and so we look at everything He says and does through that light. This wouldn't have been the case for those who first witnessed His life firsthand. For them, His identity as the Son of God was an emerging reality. Towards the beginning of His ministry, they would have naturally assumed that Jesus was just a normal human being like the rest of them. And it was only as Jesus' ministry progressed that it would have started to dawn on them that He was not just a regular guy, that He was, in fact, the Son of God. Well, when Jesus first visited Nazareth, He would have been seen as a pretty regular guy. That perception began to change dramatically after Jesus set down roots in Capernaum. The Sermon on the Mount, the cleansing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of the paralytic, 
the raising of Jairus' daughter, the Sabbath controversies, the exorcism of the blind and mute demoniac. Really, everything that we've seen Jesus say and do in Matthew after His wilderness temptation, that's all happened after Jesus moved away from Nazareth to Capernaum. And this, this changed the, these things changed the public perception of Jesus' ministry dramatically. As Jesus repeatedly, again, repeatedly healed the sick and cast out demons and raised the dead, and as He did so not only in Capernaum, but in the towns and villages throughout Galilee, it became apparent that these initial reports that were going out, they weren't just rumors. They were real. Jesus was actually doing these things. So he was certainly more than just some type of political or social reformer. He was this incredibly powerful miracle worker. And he was also preaching this equally riveting and powerful message about the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. When he came to Nazareth before, the people would have seen Jesus as this rising political star who was maybe starting to get a little bit too big for his britches considering all the things that he was claiming about himself. But now, when he comes home the second time, he's a national sensation. He's a superstar. An absolute phenomenon. His fame is spreading everywhere, and it's doing so on the basis of his unmatched wisdom and power. So now Jesus returns home to Nazareth. And this is the first time that he's been home since all of that happened. It's the first time he's been home since the rumors have been confirmed as fact. So the country boy returns home to his sleepy village, riding on the wings of his newfound fame, which has been fueled by this news of his supernatural power and wisdom. And how do the people respond? Do they show enthusiasm for their hometown hero? Do they greet him with a warm embrace and tell him how proud they are of him? Do they maybe even brag to one another? another? Do they they say to one another, you know, I I knew Jesus when he was just a little boy. I, I used to watch him sometimes when Mary was busy. You see that chair over there? He built that for me. Is Nazareth a place of refuge for Jesus? After the blasphemy of the Spirit, is this the one place in Galilee that Jesus can retreat to and be greeted with a smile? Maybe not. Perhaps the people are jealous. That's quite possible too. Maybe they hear all this attention that Jesus is getting and they look at their own dreary lives and they become envious. Maybe they see Jesus walking back into town and they say, hey, look at Mr. Big Shot over there. He really thinks he's something now, doesn't he? I guess he's probably too good for us simple country folk now, ain't he? How do the people respond to Jesus when he comes back? Is it with enthusiasm or jealousy? No, it's neither of these things. It's suspicion. Look here in verse 54. Jesus comes back home and he teaches in the synagogue. And the people say to themselves, Where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They say, they say where did this wisdom and these mighty works come from? And this is a very telling question because it underscores how very ordinary the citizens of Nazareth believed Jesus to be. Listen, they are surprised at what Jesus is saying and doing. And the implication, again, is that this is something new for them. I mean, the reason why they're saying, this is the carpenter's son, right? That's Mary's boy, isn't it? And James is his brother, and that's one of his sisters over there, right? The reason why they're saying all this is because they perceive Jesus and his family to be very ordinary people. They haven't seen this kind of wisdom, this kind of power, come from Jesus before. You know, there are these these apocryphal accounts floating around in the early church that ascribe all these miracles to Jesus. 
when he was a boy, they said he did all these different miracles. One account says that when Jesus was little, he created 12 birds out of clay and then made them come to life at the command of his word. Uh, in that particular account, Jesus also has the nasty habit of, of cursing and instantly killing other children who bump into him uh, and, and do things like that. Uh, this reaction here that we see in this passage single-handedly refutes all these types of accounts. Jesus didn't perform all these miracles as a boy. It doesn't doesn't appear that he did any at all. Because if he did, they wouldn't be asking themselves, where is this coming from? Isn't this the same Jesus that grew up in Mary's house? They're asking this question because that Jesus, the one who lived among them as a carpenter, perhaps more accurately a a builder, uh, he didn't do these types of things. So now they're wondering, who is this guy? I mean, it's the same guy, right? Well, if he is, then where is this power coming from? This is unusual for them. They didn't expect this to come from the Jesus they knew growing up. Jesus lived among them as a builder for close to 30 years. It would appear at some point in time, Joseph died along the way. And Jesus took over the family business. He didn't heal Joseph. He didn't raise him from the dead. He just took over the family business. He just followed in his footsteps and became a builder, a kind of general construction worker, a kind of handyman. And he did that until he was nearly 30 years old. Then when Jesus is about 30, he goes out to be baptized by John. John starts touting him as the Messiah, and these rumors which later proved to be true, start flooding back home that Jesus is performing all these signs and wonders. I mean, can you picture it? One day, the guy who's been working as a local carpenter for about the past 20 years, he leaves town. And then before you know it, there are these reports trickling in that the nation's greatest prophet has proclaimed him as the coming of Messiah, and people are saying that he's performing all these signs and wonders. What would you think? I mean, you think to yourself, really, what, the carpenter? I mean, yeah, I know that guy. He helped build my house, but trust me, he's a pretty average guy. He's no Messiah. Then, after a brief stop home, he moves about uh, 40 miles away to a neighboring city. And and these reports continue to flood back home. And you can picture it almost like a series of newspaper headlines. You know, local man cleanses leper. A carpenter raises the dead. Unbelievable. Jesus heals the blind. He does it again. National sensation exercises demons. And you're thinking to yourself, no, it it can't be. That's impossible. I know him. I used to see him around here almost every day. And he's not that special. He's a regular guy. I mean, he's just a carpenter. Well, over time, it becomes more and more obvious that it is true. Jesus is doing these things. What would you think then? What would you think when you finally come to realize that the local carpenter, the local construction worker, really can raise the dead. He really does have that kind of power. Do you know what the people of Nazareth thought? They were incredibly suspicious. They asked themselves, where does this power come from? They're no longer doubting that Jesus can do these things, like when he came home the first time. They now realize that Jesus is doing these things. According to verse 54, they're actually astonished by, astonished by Jesus' ability to do these things. They're astonished at His wisdom that He's displaying as He's, as he's teaching. And this presents a new problem. Where did this authority come from? That's the question these people are asking themselves. They're saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? I mean, one of the local tradesmen is suddenly, without any real warning, performing an astounding amount of unprecedented signs and wonders. This is an uneducated Nazarene, and he's he's tangling with the most well-respected Bible scholars of his day, debating with them about the right interpretation of the law, and he's winning. How is that possible? 
How can an ordinary man suddenly demonstrate such extraordinary power? How can an uneducated man suddenly possess such remarkable wisdom and insight? It seems obvious that this has to be coming from somewhere. Surely this isn't something that Jesus possesses in himself, otherwise he would have been demonstrating these qualities his entire life. If it was something that he possessed naturally, then one would think that at least some of those same qualities would be evident in his family as well, in his brothers and sisters. But none of this is the case with Jesus. Out of nowhere, he's just become this phenomenon overnight. So where is that power coming from? That's what the people of Nazareth wanted to know. And this is precisely the kind of question they should be asking. They should want to know how an otherwise average carpenter can suddenly begin to say and do these things. That's the whole point of these supernatural feats. They are signs that are supposed to direct the audience back to the source, which in this case is God, so that they can discern the authority of Jesus' message. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And he's not proclaiming that message by his own authority. He's proclaiming it as a message from his Father. He is the Son sent from the Father to proclaim this message. The signs and wonders, even the wisdom of his teaching to a certain level, that all testifies to the source. And it's meant to authenticate Jesus' message. There is a source behind Jesus' power. And Jesus revealed this source back in Matthew 12. When, after the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy of the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Where did Jesus get his power from? It came from the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus was so radically different after his baptism by John. He did get this power from somewhere. It came from the Holy Spirit who came upon him at his baptism. He empowered Jesus to perform these signs and wonders. And he did so so that when when the words were uttered at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, that those words might be verified to everyone in Israel. And they accept Jesus' message, repent, and believe. So this is a legitimate question that they're asking. Where does Jesus' wisdom and power come from? And of course, the scribes and Pharisees have already offered an answer to this question. They too recognize Jesus' works. They too recognized His great power. And they too try to assign a source to His power. Once again, we saw that back in chapter 12. When they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. What about the people of Nazareth? Where do they think Jesus gets his power from? Matthew doesn't tell us explicitly, but he says in verse 57 that, quote, they took offense at him. The word there is scandalizo. It's the word from which we get scandal. They are scandalized by him. In other words, they found Jesus disturbing to the degree that they were even offended or angered at him. And if we're reading in context, then we can probably assume that they agree with the scribes and Pharisees. This is why they're offended. They assume that the reason why this carpenter can do all these things is because he's evil. He's a kind of sorcerer. In their eyes, he's more like one of Pharaoh's magicians than he is Moses. And so they reject Jesus. Jesus is rejected even in his hometown. This can seem odd. If anyone should know that Jesus is not in league with Satan, it should be the people of Nazareth. They witnessed his character and integrity for close to 30 years, so they, more than anyone, should be able to see how crazy that idea is. Jesus was a good man. He was a righteous man. And they should know that. They should know that there is no possible way that Jesus would ever you know, turn to the dark side. 
so to speak. So why do they reject Jesus? What's the reasoning? They've already alluded to that reason in verses 55 and 56 when they say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sister with us? Jesus is one of them. He's a carpenter's son. He's Mary's boy. For some, he's probably a brother-in-law, having married one of his sisters. In other words, he's just so remarkably common They cannot bring themselves to accept Jesus' ministry because He's too much like them. They just can't bring themselves to believe that someone so remarkable could live right under their noses for so long and they not know it. The Messiah can't be from Nazareth. He can't be a carpenter. He should be a prince in Jerusalem. He should be someone special, not someone as common and unremarkable as they are. And Jesus confirms this point, this, that this is the reason why they're rejecting him, when he tells his disciples in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. People just can't bring themselves to respect someone that they're familiar with. They want to be wowed. And if someone is accessible to them, if they're in any way like them, they're not wowed. They're not impressed. This is why companies will often hire someone they don't know from outside the company rather than someone they do know from inside the company. Now, sometimes they do that because they're looking for an infusion of fresh ideas or something like that, but sometimes they're just more impressed with candidates that they don't know than they are with the people they do know. There's a a mystery in the unknown that gives a person an air of superiority, whereas the person inside the company, they already know everything about them and they're completely unremarkable. This is ultimately why the people in Nazareth couldn't accept Jesus. They were too familiar with Him. And because they were familiar with Him, He seemed common, unremarkable. And that is why they assumed that He had to get His power from dark sources rather than from God. If He were getting this power from God, then surely it would be because there was something special about Him and God was selecting Him for this remarkable task. As it was, he was entirely unremarkable. So it couldn't be that God was using him. It had to be something sinister. Matthew summarizes the result of this unbelief in verse 58. When he says, And he did not do do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Mark says that Jesus could not do many mighty works there. Matthew says that Jesus did not do many mighty works there. But if we're understanding what Matthew's revealed to us so far about Jesus' miracles, and we can understand that they're really saying the same thing. When Mark says that Jesus could not do many works in Nazareth, he isn't saying that Jesus lacked the power to do miracles there. He even records that Jesus did lay hands on a few sick people there and heal them. So clearly Jesus did have the ability to do miracles in Nazareth. But what Matthew has shown us is that Jesus would not perform miracles for those who were not receptive to them. This isn't to say that a person had to accept Jesus before he would perform some sign for them. Sometimes he did perform signs in order for people to believe, not because they believed. But at the same time, Jesus would not perform miracles for people who were hard-hearted. Jesus would do nothing for someone that would only refuse the miracle once it was performed. And the reason for this was stated back in Matthew 13. To the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Just as Jesus refused to share the secrets of the kingdom to the, with those who would only reject them, so also he refused to do miracles for those who would only reject their meaning. So I don't think that we should assume that Jesus could not heal the people of Nazareth. Nor should we assume that he would not heal the people of Nazareth. Rather, we should understand that He did not heal the people of Nazareth. And the reason was due to their unfaithfulness, their stubbornness of heart, their shortcomings. Not Jesus. I mean, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has healed everyone that has come to Him and asked for His help. And and He has sometimes done even more than what they asked. So, we have to assume that if Jesus only did a few mighty works there, 
If according to Mark, he only laid his hands on a few sick people, then we have to assume that the people in Nazareth are so hard of heart that they won't even come to Jesus to ask for his help. And again, the problem this time isn't that they don't think Jesus can help them. They doubted Jesus before, but not anymore. Now they're actually astonished at Jesus' power. They know Jesus can do remarkable things. But they don't think it's from a legitimate source. So rather than come out to be healed by this sorcerer, they keep their distance. And because of this, Jesus cannot do mighty, many mighty works there. It's an utterly tragic situation. The great physician is there in Nazareth, able and willing to take away their illnesses and remove their afflictions. But they turn away and they blind themselves to him and cut themselves off from his blessing. Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus was thinking at this time, but you have to think that this hurts. Jesus is being rejected by his closest friends, even we would assume some of his relatives. He is, in a sense, being betrayed by those who are closest to him. This is surely part of the Messianic suffering. As it says in Isaiah 53, 3, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's what's going on here. Jesus is suffering at the hands of his own people as they reject him. So why would Jesus do this? Why would he make this 40-something mile journey from Capernaum to Nazareth just so that he could go through this, just so that he could be rejected? I mean, after all, Jesus knew this was going to happen. After all, he had, he had, this had already happened once in Nazareth before. You know how I keep saying that, that Jesus visited uh, Nazareth earlier in his ministry? Uh, why don't you flip over there? Go to Luke 4. Flip over to Luke 4, verse 16. And let's look at what happened during this visit. In Luke 4, 16, Jesus comes into the synagogue in Nazareth on Sabbath. And he teaches a brief lesson about how he is the fulfillment of a Messianic promise from the book of Isaiah. Now look at verse 22. Luke says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Does that sound familiar? It's the same objection they're bringing up during Jesus' second visit. And it gets even better. Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus makes a very similar statement to what we see in his second visit, saying that a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown. And boy, is Jesus not welcome in Nazareth during this first visit. Because if you look in the exchange that follows, the people actually drive Jesus out and try to throw him from the edge of a cliff on the outside of town. So Jesus already understood the meaning of this proverbial statement when he first came to visit Nazareth, and he experienced it firsthand. So why is he coming back again? I mean, the people already tried to throw him off of a cliff once. What does he expect is going to happen when he comes home again? And the answer is rejection. That's what he expects. And this is actually why he comes back home. He comes back to Nazareth to be rejected. You see, Jesus knows what's awaiting for him, what's awaiting him in Nazareth. He's been through this once before. But really, even if he hadn't, he would, he would still know what to expect because it's the same reception that Jesus has received throughout Israel. Now, again, the blasphemy of the Spirit has already occurred. Jesus knows that as a whole, the nation is going to reject him. That's why he said that the only sign he would do from then on was the sign of, of Jonah. His fate was already sealed. And so he could expect a general rejection in Nazareth just as he could in virtually every town and village in Galilee. But Jesus goes out of his way. He goes some 40 miles back to be rejected at Nazareth again. 
And the reason is because he has a very important lesson he wants to show his disciples. And that lesson is this. You can't go home again. You can't go home again. Jesus takes his disciples out of the way to Nazareth because he wants them to see how he is treated in his hometown so he can teach them a lesson, the lesson of this whole event, which is a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus wants to teach them that lesson which they didn't get to witness on his first trip home to Nazareth. And he wants to teach them this so they can understand that they can't go home again. At least not like they did before. You know, last week I explained that this last parable about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, the one about the master of the house, that's really a charge. It explains the responsibility that Jesus' disciples have to share the lessons that they've learned about the kingdom with those who are in need. And eventually, you will recall, this charge would culminate in the Galilean commission of Matthew 10, which was the discourse, this discourse that was based entirely, almost, off of what Jesus said in Matthew 13. So this last parable is leading up to that. It's leading up to this mission in and around Galilee. Well, guess where 11 of the 12 disciples were from? They were from Galilee. And guess what follows right after this journey in Nazareth historically? Like in terms of actual historical chronological order of Jesus' life, guess what is the very next event that happened in Jesus' ministry? Mark tells us in Mark 6, it's the Galilean Commission. Can you see what's going on here? Jesus comes off this last parable, which again declared the disciples' responsibility to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew shows him marching his disciples 40 miles out of the, out of the way, going back home to Nazareth, so that they can see him rejected in his hometown. And why? It's so that they can learn this lesson. You can't go home again. I mean, sure, they can physically travel to the towns and villages in Galilee that they grew up in. They still physically exist. And the disciples could go there. They will travel there. They must travel there. But never in the same way again. They've changed too much. They've become ambassadors carrying this amazing message about the kingdom of heaven. And while one would think that this will make them popular, alas... A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. So they shouldn't expect a warm welcome when they go back. They shouldn't expect a smile and a fond embrace. They should expect what they're seeing here in Nazareth with Jesus and the citizens of his hometown. They're going to go back home proclaiming the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And do you know what they're going to hear? They're going to hear things like this. Wait a second. Isn't that Zebedee's boys? Yeah, sure it is. That's James and John. I know them anywhere. I used to buy fish from them. Oh, what are they saying? They've come in the name of the Messiah to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Really? Sure. I'm sure the Messiah couldn't have picked any better pair of ambassadors to declare the arrival of his kingdom than those two hotheads. Hey, aren't... Aren't you Matthew Levi? Yeah, you, I know you. You stole two of my sheep last year as I was passing through Capernaum. What's that? I need to repent or face the eternal wrath of God in hell. Ha, that's a good one. Hey, Aaron, come on over here. Now, Matthew, I want you to tell Aaron the same thing you just told me. And ridicule isn't even the least of it. People are going to be offended at them in the same way that the people are offended here in Nazareth. Like, they're going to get angry mad. So there's no going back, really. Home isn't going to be home anymore. And if you're here this morning as a disciple of Jesus Christ, or if maybe you're just counting the cost, weighing whether or not you're ready to fully commit to Jesus in faith, then this is what you too must realize. You can't go home again. This is something that we don't always like to admit to ourselves. We like to pretend that if we're like Christ, then there's going to be this warm reception to us from the world. 
We'd like to think that those around us will see the goodness of what we're proclaiming and the, and the good fruit that is bearing in our lives, and they're going to welcome us with open arms. But quite often, this is not how it works. You go to your family, eager to tell them about the gospel of Christ, and they wonder how you of all people would think you have something you could teach them about the character and nature of God, about eternal life. They wonder how you think you suddenly became so wise that you can proclaim eternal realities with such confidence. They know you. They understand how unremarkable you are. They're not impressed. And so when you try to tell them about God, they're not convinced. They think you're just as clueless about things as they are. They don't understand how the Spirit is at work in you to open your eyes and give you this type of boldness. And so they reject what you have to say, just like the people of Nazareth do with Jesus. They may even become belligerent at what they perceive to be arrogance. That you would think that you know so much that you, you of all people, can tell them about God. You go to your friends and and you get a similar reaction. They know what you were like growing up. They've seen the types of sins that you've been involved with. They know who you really are. And so they laugh when you tell them that they must repent. You're the last person on earth that should be telling them to repent, they think. They may watch you proclaim the gospel and then struggle with your sin because, again, they know you and then call you a hypocrite for not practicing what you preach. And again, they don't understand how the Spirit works. They don't understand concepts like regeneration, sanctification. These are all foreign to them, and so they reject you. And they may even become hostile towards you. This is what you're facing as you follow Christ. When you choose to follow Christ, you immediately enter into a new kingdom. You uh, enter into this different group of people, entirely different from the world that you grew up in. You've changed. You've come to accept a message that creates a new way of thinking, a new set of passions, a new set of priorities. And this means that when you go home again, when you go back to the old relationships, you're not going to look at each other the same way anymore. You now belong to two entirely different worlds. And so you don't share the same things in common that you once did. The things you used to enjoy, you don't enjoy anymore. Like when you go back and visit a playground you used to love to go to as a child after many years away, it's all familiar. You've seen it all before. But you're not going to run over and slide down the slide again. You've grown up, you're changed. And now you don't belong there like you once did. It's the same thing in Christ. When you believe in Christ, you're transferred out of the dominion of Satan into the dominion of God. And when that happens, you receive a new set of passions, a new set of desires that are completely incompatible with your old way of living. You grow up. And unfortunately, these new desires are completely incompatible with the world you used to live in. And this means that there will often be conflict with those who are still part of that world. So the new you won't be welcomed. Instead, it is scorned. This is what you must realize if you're going to follow Christ. There's a cost that comes with the great treasure that you receive in Christ, and this is part of it. You can't go home again. Old, familiar relationships are going to change dramatically, not always for the better. Even when you go back, it's not the same. And if you're going to follow Christ, then you must be ready for that. You must be willing to accept that. This is why in Matthew 8, when a scribe promised to follow Jesus wherever he would go, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' disciples aren't going to have a home anymore. They're not going to have a place in this world that they can go back to and find refuge. They're going to be rejected even by their hometowns and villages. This is one of the costs of discipleship. There's no such thing as dual citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. To become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven requires a renunciation of your citizenship in this world. And this means that when you come to Christ, you instantly become a stranger in a foreign land. Are you ready to be dislocated in this way? Are you ready to be alienated for the sake of the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven? 
If so, then understand that you're not without hope. Because in the next few chapters of Matthew, we're going to watch Jesus as he goes about forming a new community for him and his disciples. This is the last time in Matthew you will ever see Jesus in a synagogue. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community, but you won't see Jesus go back to one after this. And that's because he and his followers have been rejected by their Jewish brethren. They are now outcasts in their society. They, are no longer, they no longer belong to that community. Israel has completely turned its back on its king and his disciples. They've cast them out. Again, there's no going home for them. But not to worry. Because as the story continues to unfold, we'll discover that Jesus has plans for a new kind of community in mind. This is going to be a community defined not by the observance to dead traditions, but by faith. And it's going to be governed not by the spiritually blind and corrupt religious leaders of Israel, but by the King Himself, God's Messiah. And I'm speaking, of course, about the church. At this point in the story, Old Testament Judaism is passing away. With the imminent arrival of the Spirit comes an end to the Old Covenant and its man-made traditions. And this is going to require a tremendous amount of change. The arrival of God's King, the outpouring of the Spirit onto the hearts of God's people, this, these are huge developments in salvation history. The forms and traditions of Old Testament Judaism aren't going to work anymore. They're not going to be compatible with the change conditions that are going to occur under this new administration, the New Covenant. Again, the new wine can't be poured into the old wineskins. And so a whole new structure is going to have to be put in place. Well, one of these changes is the formation of a new community encompassing a different kind of people who are governed by a different set of traditions. This new community, Jesus' assembly, His church, this will be the new home for Jesus and His disciples. This is where the disciples will belong from here on out. So if you're going to follow Christ, then maybe you can't go home again. But that doesn't mean with your, with your, that, that, but that doesn't mean that you're without hope, because you still have the church. Let's close by praying to God, asking Him to give us strength to be faithful when we can't go home again. Let's also close by thanking Him for His, this new home He's made for us in His church. Let's pray.